Hi, my name is James. Throughout this series, we will need each psalm as a call and response. If you're able, please stand as we recite Psalm 1 together. Blessed are those who do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. They are like trees planted by the streams of water that yield their fruit in season, and their leaves do not wither. Like a tree that's planted in, by the water, we shall not be moved. The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Like a tree that's planted by the water, we shall not be moved. The word of the Lord. Please remain standing while we pray. Father God, as we come before your word, as we receive this word from the psalm, we just ask that you would, in our hearts, stir us to be attuned to the person, presence, and life of God spoken through your word. That Jesus ultimately is the word and the one who gives us life. So be in this place. Speak to us today. O creator, triune God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good. It's still morning. Yep. Good morning, everyone. How's it going? Good. Good. A good start to the day. Um, I, I had a great start to my day. I woke up with a push notification on my phone that Roger Federer won his 20th Grand Slam championship. <laughs> and there's a few of us who care about that. So yeah. It's a great start today. Uh, my name is Evan. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, Pastor Glenn is up north today speaking for the New Life North Congregation. And it's actually uh, one of only six times that he's up there this year. So yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, and then Jason, Pastor Jason is in Oklahoma um, because people live there and he's marrying two of them today. So, uh, so that's where he's at. So I get the pleasure of bringing the word today. We are starting a new series uh, that will start today and it will go through May. So if you're doing the math, buckle up. It's going to be a fun ride and it's going to be through the Psalter, the book of Psalms, um, which if you take your Bible and let it fall flat halfway through, you'll find it right there. Um, there are 150 Psalms. So the question is, will we possibly get through all 150 in these next three and a half months? And the answer is no. Uh, but the book of Psalms is structured in such a way that there are five books to the book of Psalms. And you can see the subheadings. So one through 40 are their own book. And then it goes book two, book three. Uh, and within those structures, there are some substructures where there's songs of lament, uh, which are majority of them songs of ascents, songs of David, songs of the songs of Korah. And we will kind of pick and choose thematically ones that might represent larger sections. But we will focus on one particular song psalm every week that we are going through this series. So Psalm 1 is uh, a great place to start. Uh, so we start with Psalm 1. So if you do have your Bibles, open up there. We're going to camp there all day. It's only six verses, uh, so you don't have to move too much away from it. But uh, question, why on earth would we study the book of Psalms? Why would we spend some time reading the thoughts and the emotions and the praises and the outcries of some ancient people that lived 3,000 years ago. Why would, we, why would we do this? 
And the answer that we want to present to us, and it's the title of our whole series, is that the Psalms present to us a language of our faith. They teach us, they instruct us, they impart to us the language of our faith. And think of it like this. When you, uh, if you're a parent in the room, or if you've been around little kids, my little boy, William, he is two and a half, and he's wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> we made it. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's two and a half, and he is amazing, and he is putting together words like crazy. Like every day, he'll, he'll pull out some new word, and we're just always impressed. Uh, and so the way that he learns language, though, is... One, listening to us, and then two, participating in kind of this back and forth where we will try and make him say, say cat, and he's getting better and better. And then finally, he was able to go, cat. And we go, yeah. You know, for the longest time, it was say cat, and his response would be, meow. <laughs> I appreciate the effort, and you're connecting some dots in there, but that was not the word cat. Uh, so it's been really fun seeing how he's growing up in that. And then there's also, you know, sometimes where we tell him to say stuff, and it's like, say the yellow bird, and he'll go, duck up a dabba. like, nope, but we'll keep trying that one too. And then there's all the other stuff that we don't even have to teach him. Uh, for instance, he, so he's got cerebral palsy, so he can't walk yet, but he will often crawl, and I, I swear, we did not teach him this, but he will crawl over to us, and he will look up at us, and he will go, I want a bite of cake. Wow, I do not have any cake, but that sentence was really impressive. <laughs> Somewhere along the way, he heard cake and saw cake and then ate cake and said, that's an important one to remember. I'm going to tuck that away, pull it out. So, so the way that he has learned his language is through exposure and then through repetition of just back and forth and going and saying, say this, say this. And it is similar, we want to say, to this, this language of our faith as presented in the Psalms. Because the Psalms are not stories, so we're not reading an Old Testament story or the Gospels or Acts where it's presenting to us some sort of narrative. They're not an epistle where they're teaching us a certain correction to doctrine and a new, this is the right way you should live. And in large part, the Psalms are an expression of humans who are in relationship with God and are responding to what's going on in some way. And when we pay attention to them, we then learn the breadth of the language and kind of the pointedness of what can we say, what, what are we allowed to say, what should we say in certain situations. God is doing what he said he did. Let the praises of the Lord be on our lips all the time. Let's praise him with clanging cymbals. And it's this, oh, that, that, that resonates with me. But I think there's also times in our faith where in, in situations we, we have this pause because we go, I know what I want to say, but I'm not totally sure I'm allowed to say it. And a lot of times it comes at the kind of the negative moments, and that's when the, the Psalter is so important in learning a language of faith, because what you'll find is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is this presence where I think if we were to ever be in conversation with each other and we were just so ticked with God and we were expressing it however, that we, we would have a mental pause because for some reason we're not supposed to tell God that as though, he, are we allowed to say you've forsaken me and, and kind of point a finger and ask why and, and, and be outraged like that? And, and what the Psalms does is it gives us a language to say, 
in relationship, this is the way that we live with God. This is the way that we interact with God. This is a language of faith that we have expressed towards God. So yes, there is permission to wrestle with God because of that relationship. And we're given permission in the scriptures to at those points when we don't understand to go, what the heck? Why, I, I, I don't get this. Why, it feels like you are forsaking me. What is going on? And Athanasius in the 4th century, one of the church fathers, he puts it like this. In the Psalter, you learn about yourself. You find depicted in it all the movements of your soul, all its changes, its ups and its downs, its failures and its recoveries. Leave that up there for a second. And the Psalter, you learn about yourself. I think there's these moments in, in, in life where inside we know that we know that something is true, but maybe it takes hearing it expressed and verbalized or written that our, our souls kind of, you've had this moment, I know, that it, they, they just kind of leap up and they go, yes, that's it. That's what I'm feeling. That's what's true. And in the Psalter, we're given a language to learn about ourselves where finally when we get to those moments where we just need words to express, we need relationship in this feeling, it goes, yes, someone else has felt that way too. Someone else has been there. Them as well. We are in this together and faith is the people of God. And the Psalter is good and useful and should be attended to to say, what is this language that we can learn by which then we can express and share this faith of ours? As we go in, at the, my final point in today, so I'm kind of forecasting here, is going to be that not only is it us learning about ourselves and then being able to express that to God as though it's, it's human man communicating to God, what ends up happening over this course of human history is also that Jesus the Christ... He references this book. He takes on this book. He lives out the Psalter himself. Two-thirds of New Testament fulfilled prophecies are from the Psalms. It is a prophetic book about this Messiah and about what is coming. And, And not so much that absolutely everything is going on is always about Jesus, but in the same way that we're saying this is humans communing with God, God became human incarnate. And so when he takes on flesh in Jesus and he becomes man, then the fullness of humanity, then he too learns this language and it becomes how he communicates with the Father when he's in prayer, when he's in the garden, when he's on the cross, when he's with his disciples, when he's teaching, and yes, when it is referring towards him, the Messiah, and he's fulfilling these things. So the Psalter is of utmost importance to understand what is this language of faith, both so that I can relate to God and so I can understand and see those situations where I'm actually in perfect fellowship with Jesus because when he took on humanity and became human, he too experienced this as well. And so I'm right there with him. So, we good? You guys want to jump in? Perfect. (laughs) We're going to jump into Psalm 1 here, uh, and I'm going to give a little bit of a preface that we're going to talk about uh, some of the structure of Psalm 1 and then a main part of what it's saying, uh, and then how, how then we live that out. So um, it's a language of faith. Psalm 1 in itself is not so much a prayer um, or a praise as much as it is a wisdom psalm. So if you're looking at scriptures, uh, 
there's wisdom literature as a category, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. The New Testament includes some wisdom books, like the, the letter of James is considered wisdom literature because there's these short little wisdom pieces to it. Um, the book of Psalms uh, has some pieces of it. Proverbs, it's completely that. But basically what you get presented within a wisdom book is there are two ways to live the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, or the way, in, in Proverbs, it would be the way of the faithful spouse versus the adulterer. And what it shows you is these juxtaposed two different ways. This is how it's A or B, a way of God, a way of sin, and which one are you going to take? And you should take the way of God, and this is why. And Psalms chapter 1 acts as a gatekeeper kind of to the rest of the book of Psalms. So if it's a language of our faith, what Psalm 1 does is set up kind of the door that we walk through where it's a wisdom piece. So there's two ways to walk now. Two ways. There is the way that is blessed and will flourish in life, the way of righteous, or there is the way of the wicked, the scoffer, the sinner, and then that will lead to destruction. So a way of living, the way of the righteous that will flourish, and the way of the wicked that will perish. And this is, these are the two rows, and that's why we say it acts as wisdom's literature. And then it's the gatekeeper to Psalms because basically once you set the precedence of this way or that way, the rest of the Psalms, next 149 chapters, 149 Psalms, what they do is they either praise God because he's doing exactly what he said he did. Lord, I was righteous and I lived in this way and you did what you said you would do. Or they, two-thirds of them, are lament or they are complaints going, God, what the? Like, I did what you said and it's not working out that way and I'm, I'm complaining, I'm mourning, I'm grieving, I'm lamenting because of it. So we have these ways set before us in Psalm 1s. Um, the Psalm, it teaches us about choices and consequences, just like there's this way and that way. It, it, it is structured where blessed is the man who does not do these things, so it's the choice to not live in that way. Instead, he meditates, and it's kind of the, the central high part of the book, and he is the person who will flourish like the tree planted. And then the end of it says, and then these are the consequences if you lived like those wicked people, but the righteous, the Lord knows their paths. And so you get kind of this uh, bookended pattern where choices and consequences, if you choose to live in this way, then these things are going to happen. Um, and, and so that's a general high-level structure for what this really looks like. But the next few points I'm going to make, it all functions under this heading. Psalm 1 reveals what flourishing really looks like. It's the center part of this verse. 1 verse 3. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. When we walk in the way of the Lord, meditate on his word day and night, then he's saying this is what the flourishing life looks like. And this is important to note because he's saying that like the tree planted by living water, the, in, in the ancient uh, Near Eastern culture, um, they would have the weather, just the patterns of weather, there are these long periods of drought where there's just no rain. And so instead of this external source, he's giving us this picture of what is it like to be rooted and planted by the source of life. 
And what I'm encouraging you as people to do is meditate on his word, walk in his ways, live according to how he has structured life to be, and you too will be like that tree planted where the roots go down and the source of life is connected to. So that even during seasons of external drought, you are connected to the internal source of life, that being God. And so this is the, what he's saying. You're looking for the flourishing life? It looks like being like this tree. The flourishing person is not phased by drought or difficulty because they are not dependent on external sources of renewal and life. They are connected to the source being God. I mean, this is what Jesus refers to. If you believe in me according to my word, out of you will flow rivers of living water. There is a source of life who is God, and when we walk in his ways, we find that connection. So this flourishing life, if this is the goal, if this is what Psalm 1 is saying, there's two ways, the way of the wicked, the way of the righteous. The wicked will perish, the righteous the Lord will uphold. What then, how do we live such a possible life? How do we do it? So I have three points that I want to just highlight through this psalm of how do we live in this way. Number one, walk in his ways, Psalm 1.1. How happy is the one, this is in the CSB, who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the path with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Walk in his ways. He's presenting, he's saying, there's a certain way that I have fashioned life, that I've fashioned an instruction and given it to you through Moses and the prophets, and I want you to walk in this way. And I want us to, to kind of get some context. So God, the creator God, who is the source of all life himself, then creates the world in Genesis, and he creates it in order. He creates seasons and patterns and land and water and humans and relationships. And we buck that order. And what he basically says is, if you recognize the order in which I've sent, and then I've come one step further and given you the prophets and instructed you in the way to live. And if you live in such a way, you will basically be living into the created order of life that I have created as an extension of myself. And these ways lead to life. It's the way that I've structured all of, all of the world. And there's both an external kind of natural law to it, and I think there's, both an, there's also an internal law to it. So, for instance, externally, all of you gym rats in the room, you're picking up on something, right? <laughs> and everybody else who's not a gym rat, they're going, I'm going to skip this point right now. But listen up. The Lord has structured our bodies in such a way that when we treat them and care for them like he has ordered them, it's a way of righteousness. Because this first verse, when he's saying blessed is the person, he's not, there's no mention of God. He's saying the word blessed in Hebrew, the, the connotation in, in the original language is happy. Happy is the person, which is why the, the verse that we just put on the screen, it's how happy is this person? They are blessed because they're, they're seeing and they're responding to an ordered way that God has naturally put in life. And so with you and you're going to the gym and you're eating healthy and whatever else you're doing, you are, you're tapping into something that says, a way of life unto my body is to take care of it. And if I follow in the instructive way of I'm going to work out this much, I'm going to eat well or well enough most of the time, um, right? That's, we, that's a way of a light, right? Okay, yeah. Well enough most of the time. Then the result will be that our bodies will flourish. They will have life. 
The less sugar we eat, the healthier they'll be and we'll get less sick. The the more sleep that we get, the more rested and and energetic we'll have. The the more our minds will be able to focus and concentrate and create. And he's just saying there's this structured, ordered way. And blessed are you who recognize that way that I've created. I think also that there's a, there's a, that's an external example. There, a spiritual kind of soul level example is blessed are you when my instruction, when you're meditating on my instruction and living in that way, then it means that instead of holding a grudge, you're extending forgiveness. And I think sometimes we see people who, when holding a grudge, you kind of see this weight start bearing on their minds and their teeth grit. And they, they just, there's something that physically manifests because there's, they're kind of bucking against a way that God has created. And they're saying, I'm going to live contrary to that. And what ends up happening is that it affects them and it starts leading to destruction where relationships starts getting impacted and all those things. And so we're just recognizing that the creator God who's created in order has created just walk in these ways, not in those. And so then it has to make us, when, when he's saying blessed are you, happy are you when you live in this way and not in that, it should cause us to then start wondering where in my life am I living in the way of God And where am I sitting with the scoffers and sitting with the mockers and sitting with the sinners and walking in those ways? Where am I paying attention on, I don't know, media or social media or whatever, where those mocking voices contrary to godliness, and we can can probably pick them out pretty quick, but maybe we don't resist against them. Where is that happening? And... For us, God wants us to turn away from something destructive in order to turn us to something productive. And if there are these two ways that he's laying out, then it's, it's asking the Lord, and it's, it's through, according to this chapter, meditating on what is the way that you've created all of this, and then how can I promote productivity of life in my own life and how can I continue to, to refuse to sit in the seat of mockers and the, the scorners? And, and how can I resist that so that it doesn't lead to destruction? How can we take away that which leads to destructive things in order to take on something productive? And number one, walking in his ways, I'm going to say is the first way that the psalmist presents, this is how you lived this blessed, flourishing life. Number two, if it's walking in his ways, it's also delighting in his ways. The next verse, one, two. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. His delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. God calls us to delight in and to meditate on his instruction as a way that life and the flourishing of life is produced within us. He he makes a similar point in Philippians 2.13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Um, Going back to the body, the the natural law of things, how many of you are those unique people in life who love eating healthy? Like, yeah, right. (laughs) How many of you are looking at those people going like, "Mm, weird. So not only is God calling us to say, I want you to walk in these ways of life, but he's also saying, and I want you, there's a certain measure of delight that I want to put in them. And I I remember hearing this pastor one time say, it's, uh, we will hunger for what we feed on. 
I'll, I'll say it again. We will hunger. Our appetite, both in the natural and in the spiritual, will hunger for whatever it is that we're feeding on. Um, most of the time, I don't know, name any ethnic food outside of your normal kind of cultural background, and you probably don't hunger for that because it's not a staple norm in, in that diet. But you meet somebody else and, and they're from whatever culture and they're like, oh yeah, I crave that thing all the time. Like, I don't often crave falafels, but some other people might, right? But it's because it's not part of my normal diet. Uh, I remember in college, college is a great time to test our self-control in dieting, right? Like, <laughs> either because we don't have a lot of money and so we buy like the cheapest food possible which is usually not good for us or for me I, in the first few years of college I had that uh, that card pass thing that you bought the meal plan you guys know what I'm talking about meal plan people in the room okay so you just go and you scan the card and it's already been paid for and you're paying interest on it with school loans and it's great and you get to pick whatever you want at that buffet Whatever you want, there is the, the burger line and the sandwich line and the, and the salads and all that stuff. And so over time, it was the first semester uh, of my schooling, um, we noticed all of us um, started getting a little bit bigger, right? Like that's the natural thing in progression without having any restraint on food proportions or anybody telling us, here's what you're eating. You just pick whatever you want. And 15 pounds later, you're like, oh, the freshman 15 is truly real. Great. But we made this rule for ourselves that half of our plate, it was me and another friend, half of our plate had to be a different shade than brown, right? Like, it's, if you think about it, it's very generous because another half can be anything that's brown, so all the, the burgers and grilled cheeses and fries that we wanted, but the other half had to be colorful. And you know that good food is colorful. It's just the way that it works, that you, you can't get an uncolorful salad or you can't get a colorful something that's really bad for you. That's just how it works. So, so half of our plate had to be colorful. And what I found was this was the first time I really started like paying attention and, and putting some, some discipline into what I was eating. But then over time, what actually started changing wasn't my discipline to only eat half, but my desire to actually increase the healthy half. And so instead of half, it was actually three quarters. It was actually full. And it, it was salads with chicken on top and all of that stuff. And so what ended up happening was what I started feeding on through the discipline actually started changing into a desire that I wanted to have. And a lot of times in our spiritual lives, what God is saying is, here, look, two ways. And what I'm asking you for is to look for a flourishing life. And these ways lead to life, and these ways lead to destruction. And we start by disciplining ourselves to say, I will not, I will be disciplined to not walk in those ways. And then he makes the shift and says, but meditate on my instruction day and night. Take pleasure in it. Let it be sweet to you. And what ends up happening is then our appetites start changing to where we can say, along with this psalmist, his delight is in the instruction and he meditates it. His delight, I delight in your word because it's life to me. I delight in your instruction because I know it's a way of communing with you and it's a way of life. And what happens is as we, if we are disciplined to, to rid ourselves of one and we start feasting on the other in the Lord's ways, we start realizing, God, you're in this. God, you're here. My roots are getting deeper. I'm like a tree planted by the water, and the source of life is coming through some of these practices. And it takes discipline. I remember uh, it was a couple of years ago, I was sitting with a pastor, and I was just asking a parting shot. What, what would you tell me, one thing, I'm a younger guy than you, um, to keep, to, 
pay attention to? What, what would you say, if I could impart one piece of wisdom to you right now, because I have to leave, this would be it. And his response was, pray to the Lord that he gives you the, the desire and the discipline to follow him. Pray to the Lord that he gives you the desire and the discipline to follow him. Because desire without discipline is unbridled passion and can get us in a lot of trouble. Discipline without desire becomes just religious lawful, this is what I have to do, and there's no delight in it. But a flourishing life of God, he's saying, my ways are good and they lead to life. And as you take them on and reject the way of the scoffer, which leads to destruction, and take on my way and delight in my word and live in that way, you will find that you too are this tree planted by the streams, and you will bear fruit in season and out. All right. This all sounds fine and dandy, right? Live in this way. Don't do that. God will change your desires. Don't do that. And then we get to these points in life, which you're probably thinking of right now and going, but it doesn't work like that all the time. What about this? And I did everything I was supposed to, but it didn't work like the nice, neat bow that you just tied on the package and, and gave to us. And I think this is where the end of the psalm really has to hit home for us. Because if a way to a flourishing life is, number one, to walk in his ways, and a way to a flourishing life is, number two, to delight in his ways, the desire and the discipline, then number three, we have to say that what God is also calling us is to trust in him. And I want to differentiate this from it's walking in his ways and delighting in his ways to saying the entire purpose of his ways is to connect us with him. And at the end of the day, when his ways are being followed, but it's not working out like we thought we would say, that's, that's the entire reason for all these lament psalms. What he's saying in Psalm chapter 1, tee up the whole thing, is that you will be like the tree planted by the streams of water and you will bear fruit in season and out. The source of life is not the ways. The source of life is him. And we will continue, whether now or tomorrow or in a year or at the end of our lives or in the age to come, to remain in the life and the person of God by walking in his ways which lead us to him, but more so by saying, God, I want to just be with you. I want to trust you. I want to be united with you. It's really God's attentiveness to us that is the reason for our flourishing. I want to give a practical example of this. Uh, like I said, our boy William is two and a half. Uh, a number of you know our story. Uh, William was born uh, with no fetal movement, 39 and a half weeks. We didn't know if he'd live or die. And there is this one point where we were being told that he might not live. And if they pulled the breathing tube out of him and he wasn't strong enough and he didn't, if his brain was too damaged to breathe on his own, then we might have the choice at that moment to put the breathing tube back in or not. And they were basically presenting us with this thing of you as the parents can choose to let your boy go. And the way that we started interpreting it was, you yourself can choose death or life. That's your choice. If it comes to that he can't breathe on his own. 
And the weight of that just was crushing. And we were, we were just crying through everything, praying through everything. And uh, we had a, a couple of older, wiser men who are mentors in my life come to the hospital the next morning. And I sat with them in a room and we just prayed and processed and cried. But the prayer came last because what ended up coming first was them taking my perspective from right here. Hey, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm living really well. I'm living according to the way of the Lord. Why isn't this working out like it's supposed to? Why might my son die? And then bringing me to this point of faith, of trust to say, do you trust God that even if he dies, that he'll live? And so really it's this tension between will you get to be his father that raises him on earth or will his heavenly father be the father who raises him in heaven and you'll see him again one day? And the truth of that just start. it was this, Lord, that's what I need to know. I, I need to know that even when it's not working out the way that you said, that what it comes down to is trusting in this eternal truth that you have your eye. You attend to the way of the righteous. And I think, I think that's, a, that's a good example, but even more so, I want to look at Jesus. Because if this psalm is true, that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor seats sits in the seat of scoffers. If that's true, then would we consider Jesus a blessed man? I think our initial reaction is, well, how could we say that he's not blessed? And yet, if we're saying he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, I don't think there's a point where you could ever argue that Jesus did anything but righteousness in his life nor stand in the way of sinners. He upheld every requirement of the law, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And yet, at the end of his life, he's the one hanging on a cross being scoffed, even though he followed the Lord's way perfectly. He's the one who is considered blessed, right? Because blessed is the man who doesn't do these things. That's got to be Jesus, then. He's blessed. And yet, he's hanging on a tree, which by definition counts him as cursed, and the Jewish faith. So we see this point of tension going, Lord, I, me and Jesus, we're walking in these ways, and yet it's not working out like you said. And he ends this whole thing with, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked perishes. Because even though we're saying, is Jesus the blessed man, though he's considered cursed, he didn't sit with the scoffers, though he's being scoffed and he's hanging on a cross. Hebrews notes that it's for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and scorned its shame. That he does stand in the multitude of the righteous. And it's this reality that sometimes we're playing a short game with our, our understanding of faith and we're going, Lord, but I did and you're not and what do I do with this? And Jesus himself is on that cross and he's saying, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is it because of a reality that God was truly not there with the son? I don't think that we could parse that apart theologically and still have full divinity intact in the son. Instead, it's this emotive 
the weight of the world, and I did everything, and are you still here? And yet, into your spirit, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he's still saying, even in that moment on the cross, that, Father, I trust in you. And in that trust, in that place of worship, the Lord says, and I am attending to your way. And three days later, he rises. And 40 days later, he ascends and he is glorified and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And when we're looking at this and say, we will not, the, the, the sinner, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, what we're saying is both now and then we say, oh God, that your way is the way that leads to life, that you are the life in whom we're looking for. Jesus, that you are the way and the truth and the life. And even at those times when it does not seem like you are fulfilling the word which you have said and promised to me, what I will do is recognize that this is, a language of faith that we're learning and that Jesus himself took it on and Jesus himself experienced it. And so I will look at the model of Jesus and the example of Jesus and say as well, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. I trust you even when it doesn't seem because what I know is that you were faithful to the Son. You were faithful that, yes, he fulfilled all the righteous requirements and still died, and yet you raised him, and life is eternal and not just here and now. It is forever, right? And we're saying the same thing with our faith. Lord, it might not make sense now, but what I'm trusting is that this way of life that you've designed is better, and even when it doesn't seem like it's working out, I am trusting in you because ultimately you are the father of all life, and at the judgment you will see and you will judge, and you will say, well done, good and faithful, enter your rest, and that the righteousness that God has bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ, his son, is still applied to us even then. And so, yes, it is hard now, and it's not working out like he said and all of that, but that is why the Psalms are so beautiful, because we're saying, yes, but even then you are still faithful. Even then you are trustworthy. And I see Jesus as the example of it, and I will align myself with the one who took on this very language of the Psalms and himself lamented and himself said these things, and still I will trust in you. This is the Psalms, and this is Psalm 1. There's these two ways, a way that leads to destruction and a way that leads to the flourishing of life. It's the discipline to walk in the way. It's the desire to walk in the way. And it's trusting God, even when it doesn't seem now, that he will work it out in the end. Looking as we come to the table now, to the model of Jesus, and saying to the faith, God, I trust you now, and I will trust you with my life forever because you've shown faithful to Jesus. And as I align myself with him, as I have in fellowship with him, you will be faithful to me too.